My name is uh, Charles Jallo. I am currently a professor of international law at Florida International University in Miami, Florida, and a member of the United Nations International Law Commission. Before joining academia, I practiced law in the Crimes Against Humanity and War Crimes section of the Canadian Department of Justice, the Special Court for Sierra Leone, and the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda. I have also been a visiting professional at the International Criminal Court and represented the African Union as amicus counsel in proceedings before the ICC Appeals Chamber. It is a privilege for me to join the long list of distinguished international law scholars and practitioners from all around the world who have participated in the audiovisual library lecture series on international law. I am therefore grateful to the codification division of the Office of Legal Affairs of the United Nations for the invitation to be part of this important process of promoting the wider dissemination of international law. Thanks also to you for joining me for this lecture from wherever in the world you may be viewing it. The theme that I was given for my lecture today is the Sierra Leone Special Court and its legacy, the impact for Africa and international criminal law which incidentally has also been the subject of a book that I edited on the topic several years ago in 2013 with Cambridge University Press. In the limited time that we have available for this lecture, I will proceed as follows. First, I will offer some general remarks on the wider modern context reflecting the rise of international criminal law and the establishment of ad hoc international tribunals, including the Special Court for Sierra Leone, which for the purposes of this lecture, I will sometimes refer to as the SCSL, the Special Court, or more simply, the Court or the Tribunal. In this early part, I situate the SCSL against its main predecessors, that is the International Criminal Tribunals for the former Yugoslavia and Rwanda. I also focus a bit on defining the important and currently widely discussed notion of legacy of this court, which has become a buzzword of sorts, given the recent completion of the trials of the modern ad hoc tribunals created since 1993. In the second part of the lecture, I will give a brief overview of the nature and key characteristics of the Sierra Leonean conflict as that contextual background should be helpful to explain some of the key features of the court. The history matters in also understanding what made that conflict one of the most horrific civil wars towards the end of the 20th century. I then turn to a discussion of the establishment and jurisdiction or competence of the SESL. This area is a bit technical, but I'll do my best to reduce the legalese since, as I understand it, this is intended to be an overview lecture for the public rather than just for lawyers or orderly legally trained persons. In the fourth part of the lecture, I will briefly examine the relatively small but very important set of trials carried out by the Special Court in several cases involving the joint trials of some of the high-level individuals associated with the main factions to the Sierra Leone armed conflict namely the Revolutionary United Front, the Civil Defense Forces, and the Armed Forces Revolutionary Council. Of course, I will also touch on what I have elsewhere described as the, quote, jewel in the crown of the Special Court, unquote, the trial of Charles Taylor, the former president of Liberia. In the final, that is concluding part of the lecture, I will step back to frame a wider picture in which I will return to the concept of legacy of international criminal courts and attempt to tentatively or rather preliminarily assess the special court's key contributions to the transitional justice process in Sierra Leone as well as its wider legacy bequeathed to international criminal justice. Having given the background, let me now turn to the first part of the lecture. Since the end of the Cold War in the early 1990s, Various types of ad hoc criminal tribunals have been established in different parts of the world with varying degrees of success. This ushered in what then UN Secretary General Kofi Annan of Ghana 
has described as the age of accountability. Although the Security Council created the International Criminal Tribunals for the former Yugoslavia and Rwanda, which were established in 1993 and 1994, to prosecute war crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocide, were the modern pioneers and are therefore better known, the Special Court for Sierra Leone followed not long afterwards and quickly began to carve out its own place in the edifice of modern international criminal law. The SCSL, which was created through a bilateral treaty between the United Nations and the government of Sierra Leone in January 2002 to prosecute serious crimes committed in Sierra Leone, was designed taking into account the perceived shortcomings or perhaps more positively experiences of the Yugoslav and Rwanda tribunals in particular, their apparently costly nature, the slow pace of their proceedings, their geographic and emotional distance from the local populations in whose names they were asked to render justice, and their seemingly unfocused prosecutions, which sometimes included lower-ranking suspects that some deemed more appropriate for trial within national courts rather than before an international penal tribunal. The Yugoslav and Rwanda tribunals were created by resolutions of the Security Council, adopted on the basis of its powers in the UN Charter to take robust measures under Chapter 7 to ensure the maintenance or restoration of international peace and security. In contrast to the legal basis of these twin UN tribunals, which are sometimes referred to as Security Council impositions, the Special Court for Sierra Leone was predicated on the direct consent of the government of Sierra Leone through the negotiation and conclusion of the first bilateral treaty between the UN and one of its member states to establish a special tribunal to prosecute international crimes. This means that the SCSL and the Chapter 7 tribunals differ markedly in some respects, reflecting the particular legal, historical, and political circumstances and context of their establishment. Today, as I give this lecture in October 2017, the Yugoslav, Rwanda, and Sierra Leone tribunals have all completed their respective mandates. They have now been replaced by much slimmer residual mechanisms, namely the Mechanism for International Criminal Tribunals, which covers the ICTY and the ICTR, so the Yugoslav and, Rwa and Rwanda tribunals, and then the Residual Special Court for Sierra Leone, which of course uh, replaces the Special Court. These mechanisms carry out the essential judicial functions of those tribunals. Not surprisingly, over the past five or so years, as the mandates of these tribunals came to an end, the tribunals, as well as academics, turned towards efforts aimed at evaluating the potential impact and limitations of these ad hoc courts using doctrinal semi-empirical and even empirical approaches in an attempt to discern their so-called legacy. The environment is awash with legacy talk, so to speak. Of course, the idea that academic lawyers and even states and others might be interested in conducting normative assessments of the legacy of these international criminal courts that states have created to prosecute crimes in specific situations is not new. Indeed, the notion of legacy has some historical pedigree dating at least as far back as the conclusion of the first international trials at the Nuremberg International Military Tribunal in 1946. While it does not appear that the term legacy was in vogue then as much as it is now, no less than Justice Robert Jackson, the chief American prosecutor at Nuremberg, 
argued only months after the delivery of the final judgment of the military tribunal that the success of the Nuremberg trials could be assessed against whether the tribunal had achieved what it set out to do. Even though he conceded that it would be otherwise premature to reflect upon the long-term impact of that tribunal at that early stage, you remember we're talking just months after the conclusion of the trial, Justice Jackson could readily, and in my view rightly, identify six legal accomplishments that are attributable to the trials of the Nazi leadership just months after the completion of the judicial process. He then went on to opine that while the Allies' conclusion of the London Agreement, which established the military tribunal, and the historic nature of that trial that was subsequently carried out, would not mean that we will see the end of aggressive war or the persecution of minorities in the way we had seen in Europe at that stage, or in fact even the commission of international crimes, what we would in today's language called the Nuremberg legacy had established new standards of conduct for humanity. New standards of conduct for humanity. He expected that those standards would in the future serve as bulwarks of peace and tolerance by holding individuals accountable for international crimes at the international level. In his view, this had thus, the completion of the trials, had thus put, and I quote, international law squarely on the side of peace as against aggressive warfare, and on the side of humanity as against persecution, unquote. Let's think about that for a moment. Though Justice Jackson spoke about the legacy of the Nuremberg trials, right after the conclusion of the trials, it took the international community between the period at the end of those trials and the subsequent establishment of the International Military Tribunal for Tokyo, this is towards the end of the 40s, took between that time, the late 40s, all the way into the early 1990s. I'm talking precisely 1993, when the Security Council and the international community could develop and put in place the ad hoc tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. In a sense then, those decades that passed were necessary somehow for us to fully realize the Nuremberg legacy, which in many ways was completed in 1998 with the creation of the permanent International Criminal Tribunal. So let's spend a moment on the concept of legacy. Though this term is often mentioned in contemporary international criminal law discourse, it's not always defined. The term, as I use it here in this lecture, should be understood as a narrow and specific reference to the body of legal rules, innovative practices and norms that the tribunal is expected to hand down to current and future generations of international, internationalized and national courts charged with the responsibility to prosecute the same or similar international crimes. This definition, while perhaps imperfect, is to be distinguished from the much broader, much broader conception of legacy offered by the UN Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights in relation to hybrid courts as their, quote, lasting impact on bolstering the rule of law in a particular society by conducting effective trials to contribute to ending impunity while also strengthening domestic judicial capacity, unquote. My use of the term here does not contemplate the physical infrastructure, like the court buildings that were left behind in Freetown, the Sierra Leonean capital, and that today serve as a peace museum. 
nor does it contemplate the documents and archives and records of the tribunal. These are matters that, in my view, are more appropriately considered and discussed as part of the residual mechanism, the residual special court for Sierra Leone. So it follows that the sense in which I, in this lecture and in my own academic work, invoke the quote-unquote L word is more modest. It is closer to but distinct from the definition offered by Professor Richard Steinberg of UCLA in his work on the legacy of the ICTY. Legacy, for me, essentially describes the corpus juris of rules, doctrines, and innovative tribunal precedents and institutional practices that the court may be said to have developed and contributed to the emerging body of substantive international criminal law and procedure. This focus seems particularly significant because, it is, as it is widely known, after the watershed post-World War II prosecutions at Nuremberg and Tokyo, international criminal law essentially languished in the shadows for several decades until it was at last resuscitated by the United Nations through the creation of the ad hoc Chapter 7 tribunals in the early 1990s. This is the point that I was making earlier about how long it took for us to realize the legacy of the Nuremberg trials. Be that as it may, once it completed all of its nine trials, the Special Court for Sierra Leone basically became the first of the more than ad hoc international courts to complete all of its cases through to appeals and to symbolically close down its doors even as it transformed into a residual mechanism. Perhaps in part because of this, it's not surprising given that the, they were the first truly international criminal courts to be established. Various scholarly efforts have already been undertaken to assess the legacy and the impact of the ICTY and to a lesser extent the ICTR. Most of the attempts to evaluate the legacy of the twin tribunals created by the UN have focused on their pioneering additions to the Nuremberg legacy and to the normative advancement of the concept of individual criminal responsibility at the international level, as well as on the elaboration of the substantive content of the various international crimes within their jurisdiction, in particular the crimes of genocide, crimes against humanity, and war crimes. In stark contrast, between the time the SCSL was created in January 2002 and when it closed its doors in December 2013, fewer scholarly works have systematically examined that tribunal and its role in post-conflict Sierra Leone or its legacy to international criminal law and practice. While there now appears to be a healthy body of literature on the court, which is very welcome in my view, until recently, the bulk of the commentary has focused on its apparent hybridity compared to the ICTY and ICTR. And when I talk about hybridity, I'm talking about the dual legal nature of the tribunal. So when you compare the Special Court for Sierra Leone with the Rwanda and Yugoslav tribunals, the Sierra Leone tribunal was effectively part, at least in one respect, of the domestic system in reflecting Sierra Leonean law. So part of, for example, the crimes that were prosecuted formally, or at least included, not prosecuted, included in the statute of the tribunal were Sierra Leonean crimes. You cannot, you would not find um, the laws of the former Yugoslavia or the Rwanda tribunal um, in, the, in relation to the Rwanda tribunal, the laws of Rwanda prosecutable uh, by those by those courts. So that hybridity provoked a lot of conversation among international criminal lawyers. And even more interestingly, it was seen because of the model that it could be a leaner and a cheaper way, institutional model, but really a way for bringing justice to diverse post-conflict situations because, again, the model of funding differed when you compare it to the UN ad hoc tribunals for the former Yugoslavia and Rwanda. 
in the special code for Sierra Leone context, and this is a point that, will, that I'll come back to later on, the tribunal was funded by donations from voluntary, voluntary contributions of UN member states. So even fewer studies have examined the law and the practice of the special court between the time of the first indictments in March 2003 and the completion of all its trials in 2012 to determine whether it has made or failed to make meaningful additions to the broader international criminal justice project. Yet, because of the near unique fact pattern of the Sierra Leone conflict and the manner and the timing in which the events took shape, the SCSL was often confronted with a range of novel legal issues in the course of its proceedings. This allowed the judges of the tribunal to develop some really interesting jurisprudence on issues of wider significance international criminal law and practice. I will come back to some of those issues later on in this lecture. In many ways, this meant the court was among the first to grapple with some of the most important and recurring legal dilemmas for many modern post-conflict situations. For example, among others, the SCSL was the first international criminal court to try and convict persons for the war crime of recruitment and enlistment of children for the purposes of using them in hostilities. This is a crime that is included in the jurisdiction of the permanent international criminal court and in fact, it was the first crime that was prosecuted in that court in the so-called Thomas Lubanga case. So the fact that the special court prosecuted that case meant that it could apply the law to the first case in an international tribunal, and that proved to be very helpful later on for the judges of the permanent international criminal court in The Hague. It was also the Sierra Leone Court, the first international tribunal to prosecute the war crime of attacks against UN peacekeepers. And again, I pause here for a moment, because if you think about the caseload of the ICC, the Permanent International Criminal Court in The Hague, there were peacekeepers, African Union peacekeepers that were killed in Darfur, and later on UN peacekeepers. This is a phenomenon that we're seeing in armed conflicts. So it's very important that these tribunals can prosecute these cases. And again, Sierra Leone applied that body of law for the first time. The significance cannot be underscored enough. A third example, the Special Court was the first tribunal to recognize a new crime against humanity of forced marriage as an, quote, other inhumane act. And here, there was a phenomenon in the Sierra Leone conflict that I want to pause and talk about as well. Women were targeted specifically by the rebels. They would come into a town or a village. They would line up civilian women who had nothing to do with the conflict. And the commanders, based on their seniority, would select a quote-unquote wife. International law had not had a prohibition for that kind of heinous behavior because the impact on this woman is so well documented in the trials in Sierra Leone. So the prosecutors made the decision that they would attempt to advance the law, and they used this other inhumane act category to charge the defendants and wanted to name and shame that particular behavior, to say the international community condemns that behavior. This is something that we had seen in the Cambodia situation with the Khmer Rouge in a different format. We see it in other modern conflicts. Again, Sierra Leone was the first to apply that kind of law. And perhaps equally notably, the tribunal, the SESL, was the first to indict, fully try, and then convict a former African president. He was a president, sitting president, when he was charged. He was no longer president when he was arrested and transferred to the tribunal for planning and aiding and abetting the commission of international crimes, war crimes, crimes against humanity, other serious violations of international law, not in his own state, in a neighboring state. Again, a significant development for international criminal law. So finally, because of the SESL's landmark jurisprudential precedence, 
it seems to me that future legal efforts to hold perpetrators to account may now benefit from greater clarity on, among other issues, questions such as the scope of the Security Council's power to authorize a bilateral treaty-based international tribunal and the legal nature, status, and consequence of such a court in respect of the obligations of third states. And this, again, we have here the Liberia example that I just gave moments ago. Whether sitting heads of third states in such a tribunal are immune from prosecution for serious international crimes before a bilateral treaty-based international court. Remember earlier I said that the court was created, the first to be created by agreement between the United Nations and one of its member states, Sierra Leone. And the question was whether you can do so in, those, in that setting and hold accountable the leader of a state that was not party to that agreement. Again, very, very important development. The special court dealt with the question whether amnesties granted under the domestic law of a state, such as Sierra Leone, barred the prosecution of universally condemned international crimes before an ad hoc international criminal court. Whether alternative accountability mechanisms such as special tribunals and truth commissions can coexist and complement each other where they are used simultaneously. Again, something I want to pause and underscore here. Because of the sequence of events, the war in Sierra Leone was meant to come to an end, and the government made an agreement in the Lome Peace Agreement from 1999 to end the war. And as part of that, they granted amnesty to all the perpetrators for all the crimes that they committed, whether under domestic law or international law. The government purported to just give amnesty to everybody. Their argument was a practical argument that we need to end the war. So we got to do something. And if this is the way we'll end the war, the population has to understand, as difficult as it is, we're just going to bury the hatchet and move on. Unfortunately for the government, unfortunately for the victims, the people who said that you do not do this proved to be right because, in fact, what it did was it emboldened the rebels to go back to war and they became part of the government and even caused even more crimes, committed even more crimes. That's when the government got sick of them and then went to the international community to try to prosecute them. At that point, though, it meant we had a truth commission in Sierra Leone and a special court in Sierra Leone. So you had two processes that typically are seen as alternatives to each other. You select one, don't go with both of them. Well, here is a scenario where Sierra Leone, just by the nature of the circumstance, had two. So it became the first country to experiment with balancing those two institutions. Another example, I mentioned already the recruitment of child soldiers and criminal responsibility under customary international law. Well, there was a question at the court as to whether that had been a crime by November 30th, 1996. So if you step back, this is a lot of information. You'll recall so far that we've discussed the advent of international criminal tribunals on the international scene, and we, I think, set the special court for Sierra Leone in that wider context of international community efforts to hold individuals accountable for grave crimes under international law, which started way back at Nuremberg. I'll return to say a few more words later on about the landmark jurisprudential decisions from the SCSL that contribute to the development of modern international criminal law. We'll set that aside for a moment. And as I promised earlier, when I gave the roadmap of the lecture, I want to provide a brief historical overview of the circumstances in Sierra Leone which led to the creation of the SESL. I think this context is very important. It matters because without it, it is hard to grasp the full scope and rationale behind the special court as an institution. So the Sierra Leone conflict, which started on March 23rd, 1991, and ended on January 18th, 2002, gained notoriety around the world for its brutality and the perpetration of some of the worst atrocities against civilians ever witnessed in a modern conflict. The war, which is 
estimated to have resulted in the deaths of 70,000 people to the displacement of about 2.6 of the country's population of 5 million and to the maiming of thousands of others was characterized by widespread killings, mass amputations, abductions of women and children, recruitment and use of children as combatants, rape, sexual violence against mostly women and underage girls, including their taking as quote-unquote bushwives, arson, they will burn up entire villages and towns, pillage, looting, burning and wanting destruction of villages and towns. The tragedy of all of this is that it was all, not always so for Sierra Leone. In fact, the Sierra Leonean conflict and that country's relatively recent association with signature atrocities, blood diamonds, and the prosecutions of international crimes through the Special Court for Sierra Leone, which is the subject of this lecture, is that it was previously considered a haven of political stability and a center of higher learning in West Africa. Sierra Leone, along with it, uh, Gambia, Ghana, and Nigeria, were basically the four British colonies in West Africa. And it secured its political independence from Britain on April 27, 1961. And after what seemed to be an auspicious start for democracy with the forced peaceful transfer of power to an elected opposition party in an independent African state in 1967, so it's about six years after independence. This happened, and remember, this is an issue that now we see still African states struggling with. The opposition wins the election and the incumbent government refuses to turn over power. Certainly was the first country. They turned over power right away. So the British legacy unfortunately it proved to have very little longevity because the country quickly degenerated down that path of instability with a military coup after the other, counter coups, and ultimately the main party, the All People's Congress Party, formed a stable government around 1970. Unfortunately, that government, under the stewardship of then-President Stevens, Shaka Stevens, stifled democracy and transformed itself into a one-party regime and, you know, held on a kind of like a stranglehold on the country through massive corruption, nepotism, plunder of public assets, and, you know, they just exacerbated the ethnic, regional, uh, rural urban cleavages that were in Sierra Leone. So by the time the decade of the 1980s rolled around, between that point into the 1990s, the bad governance, the economic decay, the intolerance for dissent, and the shrinking of the democratic space, among other factors, had created sufficient malaise for the outbreak of conflict in the country. So when in March 1991, a group of about 40 to 60 armed men entered a village known as Bomaru in Kailahun district in the eastern part of the country near the Liberian border, a lot of people held their breath. The attack in which only 13 people, in which 13 people died, only two, I should repeat, 13 people died, only two of whom were combatants perished, turned out to be one of the first salvos, the first moments we hear of the murderous Revolutionary United Front rebels, apparently led by one Fode Sanko, a disgruntled former soldier in the Sierra Leone army, whose apparent goal was to overthrow the then government under President Joseph Saido Momo. In a few weeks, the rebels with human support, material support, logistical support from Charles Taylor of the National Patriotic Front of Liberia, who came up later on in the special court, who I already mentioned earlier, and I'll come back to later on, increased the intensity and the pace and of the attacks. And in the end, of course, the government army, which was ill-equipped and fairly corrupt, had more experience putting down peaceful pro-democracy student demonstrations in the capital in Freetown than fighting it. Well, they fought a war. 
they proved unable to contain the unrelenting guerrilla attacks by the RUF. So just in a few months, most of the Kailahun district in eastern Sierra Leone and Pujahun district in the south, both being the districts that are not far from the Liberian border, had fallen under rebel control. So because the government army was unable to combat the war, to contain it, and the government and the elite in Freetown failed to even take the war seriously, it was only a matter of time before the war would spread to other parts of the country. And the consequences were devastating for the local population. In fact, President Momo, he didn't even have a coherent strategy to deal with the nation's security. Even as his largely undisciplined and inexperienced army continued to suffer terrible losses from the ragtag rebels, the RUF. The rebels, for their part, as they initially experienced some military setbacks, resorted more and more to guerrilla-style hit-and-run tactics. And they engaged in some barbaric acts aimed at instilling fear and terror, striking terror into the hearts of the enemy, which unfortunately mostly was the local civilian population. So their strategy was, you terrorize the population, you abduct civilians, you drug and enlist children to fight, you burn and loot villages, you rape young girls and women. I mean, that strategy that developed early on in the war, in the early days of the war, were later to become the tragic images that were associated with the Sierra Leone conflict in other parts of the world. With the army having lost confidence in their commander-in-chief, President Momo was ousted from power in April 1992 by a group of mutinying soldiers led by a young 27-year-old army captain by the name of Valentin Strasser. He, had, he was an army paymaster. He had no political experience. Strasser and his colleagues took over the reins of state and they formed a junta regime that they called the National Provisional Ruling Council. Although it was very popular at the beginning, because a lot of Serenians thought here was an opportunity for change, the NPRC government, that National Provisional Ruling Council government, suspended the national constitution, and thereafter they ruled the country by decree. So they, instead of passing legislation, because there's basically no parliament, they just decree what would happen by government order. This is how the population was ruled. Ostrasa, as well as his former deputy, Julius Mada Bio, who later overthrew him in a palace coup in January 1996, failed to also decisively end the conflict with the RUF. And because of the public's deep distrust of the army, who locals aptly labeled Sobels, which is a coinage of combination of the word soldier and rebel, so the first part, first to the first syllable in soldier and rebels, and the last two syllables of rebels, so Sobel, S-O-B-E-L. This is what they came up with to describe people who they consider to be soldiers by day and rebels by night, because in some instances, they actually accuse the Sobels, so the government forces, in attacking the villages themselves. The government decided that they couldn't trust them, and so they hired mercenaries. So first, they looked at Nepal, they hired the so-called Gorkas, and they brought them to Sierra Leone. And then afterwards, they went to South Africa, and they hired a group known as Executive Outcomes. And the idea was that these mercenaries will help the government fight the war, and in return, they would partake in the country's generous diamonds. So the government gave them big concessions. Now, the presence of foreign mercenaries, of course, helped in the beginning. It offered a little bit of respect to the government. However, it proved to be only a band-aid instead of a permanent solution. It temporarily enabled the government to continue its sovereign control of the mineral-rich mining areas in the east and the southern parts of the country. So no accident that the war started in those parts, because those are the richest areas. So the rebels could literally fund the war as they went along. And those areas, of course, happened to be close to Liberia as well. Now, under the kind of pressure from the Sierra Leonean population that had been clamoring to participate in their country's governance through the ballot box, the junta eventually restored constitutional rule. So finally, long-anticipated 
democratic elections were conducted in 1996. And the opposition party, so the Sierra Leone People's Party, not the All People's Congress Party, candidate, um, Ahmed Tijan Kaba, who in fact have, has a UN connection. He had been uh, a, the UN representative in several African countries, returned home, he contested the elections, and he won. President Kaba immediately entered into negotiations with the RUF rebels and concluded a peace accord in Ivory Coast in 1996 that was aimed at ending the conflict. But the Abidjan Accord contained, among other provisions, uh, clauses calling for the termination of hostilities, removal of the executive outcomes, mercenaries from South Africa that I mentioned earlier, within three to six months, and the grant of an amnesty under which no judicial action will be taken against the RUF for the crimes perpetrated by them up to the date of signature of the agreement. Nevertheless, as there did not appear to be a good faith on the side of the rebels to transform themselves into a political movement with the rights, privileges, and duties recognized under Sierra Leonean law, the Abidjan Accord failed, hostilities resumed, and yet another coup took place, this time by a group known as the Armed Forces Revolutionary Council on May 25, 1997. President Kaba, who had been democratically elected, fled the country to neighboring Guinea, where he essentially set up a government in exile in Conakry. The AFRC junta, who released Major Johnny Paul Koroma, who was in jail at the time, to make him their leader, he would later be indicted by the special court, installed themselves as a new regime and they declared martial law, and they invited Sanko and the area of leadership to share power. But the uneasy AFRC-RUF coalition failed to gain any international recognition. And a massive and unprecedented campaign of civilian, civil disobedience from Sierra Leoneans, ordinary Sierra Leoneans were non-political, simply fed up with the war, effectively shut down the country for periods at a time. And as the army was no longer loyal, the desperate Kabar government designated a civilian militia, the civil defense forces, led by a fellow by the name of Sam Hinga Norman, who was a deputy defense minister to help fight the rebels. Norman would later be indicted by the special court as well. So with the strong international backing, especially from the Regional Economic Community of West African States, ECOWAS, which was committed to restoring the democratically elected government, Kaba was reinstated to power after about 10 months on March 10, 1998. And in July 1999, the militarily weak Kaba government negotiated the Comprehensive Lome Peace Agreement with the RUF in the hope of ending the conflict once and for all. The Lome package, reflecting the weaknesses of a government tethering on the brink of collapse, tried to placate the rebels through what I call power oversharing, including offering four deputy minister positions, four key ministerial positions, and even the vice presidency of the country to the RUF rebels. In one of the most confounding decisions that could have been made by a Sierra Leonean government that was dependent on minerals for core revenue, President Kaba agreed to create a commission that would be solely responsible for the country's immense gold, diamond, and other strategic mineral resource wealth. On top of that, he ceded the chairmanship of that board to Sanko. Remember, the RUF rebel leader who could now lawfully take what he previously had to plunder. The parties also agreed to disarmament, rehabilitation, and reintegration of the former combatants into society. The UN and ECOWAS undertook to serve as the quote-unquote moral guarantors of the peace 
to the subsequent deployment of peacekeepers. Significantly, and this is a point that relates to the jurisdiction of the court later on, to avoid any type of criminal accountability for the horrific crimes committed during the war, the parties provided for the establishment of a Truth and Reconciliation Commission that would purportedly address impunity, break the cycle of violence, provide a forum for both victims and the perpetrators of gross human rights violations to tell their story about the war and promote national healing. And in a move that was highly controversial, especially within Sierra Leone, but also even internationally, President Kaba capitulated to the RUF demands and expanded the amnesty concession, first included in Article 14 of the Abidjan Accord. That is the accord that had been signed in 1996, November 30, 1996. So they expanded this provision. Unfortunately, even the blanket amnesty granting Sankor personally and all other combatants and collaborators, quote, absolute and free pardon and reprieve, unquote, absolute and free pardon and reprieve, unquote, in respect of all their depraved actions between the start of the war and the conclusion of the Lome Peace Agreement in 1999 proved insufficient, insufficient to restore peace to Sierra Leone. So around this time, even though the Sierra Leonean war had largely been ignored by most Western media up to that point, the sensational stories of human savagery to fellow humans going on in a small West African nation started generating quite a bit of an external interest. The publicity efforts were led by local and international civil society advocacy groups, especially within Sierra Leone, the women's groups that were fed up with the war, taking the lead in several mass public protests in Freetown. We had the largest public protests in the country's history. People were just fed up and they just walked the streets to call for an end to the war. From an international perspective, prominent NGOs, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, led international naming and shaming efforts with a series of widely disseminated and shocking reports of what was going on in Sierra Leone. So the demobilization, reintegration, and rehabilitation programs for the combatants soon began to run into difficulty. And it became evident that some factions within the RUF itself, the rebels, they were bent on undermining the peace. They were not sufficiently invested in winning the peace as much as they were in continuing the war to voluntarily lay down their weapons. The government, which had flatly refused to seriously consider the criminal accountability option, appeared to undergo a significant change of heart when in May 2000, May 2000, over 500 UN peacekeepers from several African states, I think Kenya and Zimbabwe and so on, were disarmed and held hostage by renegade rebel commanders in the northern part of Sierra Leone. Over 500 of them. Sanko, who was the leader of the RUF, it was now very clear he had limited influence and authority over his key battlefield commanders. So he was arrested following the civilian demonstrations that I mentioned earlier, at one of which shootouts had occurred in, at his home in the west end of Freetown. So he was thereafter detained at an undisclosed location, and just the following month, in June 2000, President Kaba formally declared that his government could no longer tolerate further RUF violations of the key terms in the Lome Peace Agreement. So consequently, under renewed pressure from the local and international civil society to repudiate the blanket amnesty in the Lome Accord and to establish some type of criminal prosecution mechanism to prosecute the worst offenders, the Kabar government turned to the UN seeking assistance to create a credible special court to try the worst offenders, especially the RUF leadership. On the UN side, the fact that UN peacekeepers had come under attack meant there was 
greater interest now among the powerful states that were a bit concerned about the cost of international justice in light of the experiences with the Yugoslav and Rwanda tribunal. So they are more amenable to entering into an agreement with Sierra Leone to create the special court. So far in this lecture, we've started out with a situating of the SCSL within the wider developments in international criminal law and the creation of international criminal tribunals. We've talked a little bit now about the history of the Sierra Leone conflict and some of the key events that led for the government to turn to the United Nations and the international community looking for support to establish an international criminal tribunal. So let me now shift, those are the first two parts of the lecture. Let me now shift to the third element in my lecture, where I will give that overview of the establishment and jurisdiction of the special court for Sierra Leone. The agreement to create the special court was signed on January 16, 2002, by representatives of the United Nations and the Sierra Leonean government in Freetown, the Sierra Leonean capital. This represented, that meeting in Freetown represented the culmination of the process that President Kaba had begun when he sent that letter in June 2000 to the United Nations Security Council through Secretary General Kofi Annan requesting the international community's assistance to establish an independent, quote, special court, unquote, that through prosecution of those leaders who had planned and directed a notoriously brutal conflict characterized by atrocity crimes and the taking of UN peacekeepers as hostages would help bring justice and ensure a lasting peace. President Kabab maintained in that letter that but for international support, Sierra Leone will not have the legal, logistical, human, and other resources necessary to prosecute those responsible for the atrocities. And this is a phenomenon that we see in a lot of modern conflict situations because the state comes under heavy stress because of the conflict, traditional institutions are destroyed, and now you want to have accountability. How do you go about doing that? So in fact, it kind of set a trend where we have more and more requests for international support to create a special tribunal to the point that even regional organizations like the African Union, in collaboration with countries like Senegal, have entered into similar agreements, creating a special court in the context of Senegal to try the leader, former leader of Chad, Hissène Habré, within the national courts of Senegal. So that phenomena of a country coming under stress and looking for international support um, is something that is resonating many years later on. Now, the resolution that was adopted by the Security Council, Resolution 1315, on August 14, 2000, formally endorsed President Kaba's request. That resolution is not a Chapter 7 resolution. It directed Secretary General Annan to negotiate an agreement with the government of Sierra Leone to establish an independent special tribunal with jurisdiction or competence to prosecute those, quote, bearing greatest responsibility, unquote, focusing in particular on those who had threatened the establishment and implementation of the peace process in Sierra Leone. The subject matter jurisdiction of the court was to include war crimes, crimes against humanity, and other serious violations of international humanitarian law. And if you remember earlier, I said one of the features of the Sierra Leone uh, tribunal that was different is that it included national law. Uh, it also had jurisdiction over various national offenses in Articles 4 and 5 of the Statute of the Court, so in addition to the international crimes. With respect to the temporal jurisdiction, so the period of time that the tribunal could address, the intention was it would cover crimes that occurred after November 30th, 1996. You have heard that date before because it was the date of the signature of the Force Peace Agreement in, in Ivory Coast, the Abidjan Accord. And that was over the 
Unfortunately, the objections of the government, which ultimately had felt that the jurisdiction of the court should go back to the beginning of the conflict in March of 1991. So effectively, about the first five to six years of the war were not covered in the jurisdiction of the special court. You might ask the reasons why. One of the main reasons is that it was felt that the tribunal would not have the resources to prosecute the mass amount of crimes that had occurred in Sierra Leone. So they wanted to find a date that was fairly neutral in terms of the conflict, but at the same time not overburden the tribunal. This is a point that has been criticized in Sierra Leone and it has been criticized in the academic literature and it's a challenge for the international community to find that balance. Moving on to the geographic jurisdiction of the tribunal, it was actually only empowered to prosecute offenses that actually took place on Sierra Leonean territory. This is standard in terms of international law. But you could contrast that position um, by the Sierra Leone Agreement with the Rwanda Tribunal, where the international community agreed to provide for jurisdiction over certain crimes associated with the 1994 Rwandan genocide, but that did not take place on the territory of Rwanda, but rather in neighboring states, states neighboring Rwanda. This obviously could have been easily done in the Sierra Leone situation, given the intimate connections between the Sierra Leonean and what was a conflict in neighboring Liberia that started even the year before. In any event, the statute of the SCSL, which entered into force on April 12, 2002, after each of Sierra Leone and the Secretary General had complied with their respective formalities for its implementation, contained many novel features that were intended, among other things, to reflect the specificities of the Sierra Leone, which is why we spent so much time going over the history of the conflict. It was an attempt to create a cheaper and inexpensive institution that was expected to conclude its work in about three years at the time. Now we can look back and it took way more than three years. So we were way off the mark in terms of estimating how long it would take the tribunal to prosecute the cases. In any event, for these reasons, as well as others that are more prosaic, the court was the first international penal tribunal to be giving a narrowly framed personal jurisdiction to only prosecute those deemed to bear the greatest responsibility for the various international and national crimes within its jurisdiction. If you compare that language to the ICTY and ICTR statute, they were responsible for, for prosecuting persons responsible, not persons bearing greatest responsibility. There's a difference, there's a legal difference persons responsible as opposed to persons bearing greatest responsibility, a higher threshold, so to speak. Individuals that are in leadership positions, for example, as opposed to people who may be middle level and even lower ranking perpetrators. Second, the Sierra Leone Court became the first international tribunal since Nuremberg and Tokyo to sit in what the lawyers would call the locus commissi delicti, effectively the place where the crimes were committed. Because even though we had the Yugoslav and Rwanda tribunals, the Yugoslav tribunal did not sit in the former Yugoslavia, it sit, sat in The Hague, the Netherlands. The Rwanda tribunal did not sit in the Rwandan capital, Kigali, which was the preference of the Rwandan government, rather in a small town in Arusha, Tanzania, neighboring Rwanda. So Sierra Leone was the first court to now essentially go home to the country where it's, uh, for which the, it was prosecuting the offenses. The Sierra Leone court was the first to provide scope for the affected state, in this case Sierra Leone, to appoint some of the principal officials of the tribunal, such as a minority of the judges in each of the trial and appeals chambers of the tribunal, and even the deputy prosecutor. That's a model that you don't see in the Chapter 7 courts. Those countries had no role in selecting the judges. Rwanda didn't have that role. Yugoslavia didn't have that role. You see that kind of format coming up later on in the Cambodia tribunal. 
although the model was slightly different in terms of the balance of positions. In the Cambodia tribunal setting, they are basically equal in weight to the international. And that caused problems for the tribunal later on. In Sierra Leone, I think we got it right. You had a minority of the judges and the deputy prosecutor, and then the majority and the main prosecutor were appointed by the international community. The fourth element of what made the SCS a very interesting, something I mentioned already, is that it was the first tribunal to be funded entirely through donations by UN member states. That was a bit of a difficulty for the Secretary General, and it's a point that I'll come back to later on towards the end of the lecture, because it gave us a lesson on how not to fund international tribunals. The Sierra Leone Court, continuing on the series of firsts, became the first tribunal that was overseen by an independent management committee comprised of non-party states that volunteered to be on the management committee to give it assistance and oversee its operational aspects. And finally, in terms of these unique features of the CSL, it was the first court, and again, it's a point I was making earlier, to operate alongside a Truth and Reconciliation Commission in a post-conflict situation anywhere in the world. So on balance, you would see that the Sierra Leone Tribunal innovated quite a bit to address the specificities of the Sierra Leone situation. Now, upon its establishment, the SCSL scored a series of other firsts. It engaged with some innovative practices to address specific issues, specific problems that it confronted. And I want to highlight three innovations in the structure of the tribunal that are important for the legacy argument later on. Firstly, the court became the first ad hoc international criminal court to create, under its rules of procedure and evidence, a semi-autonomous office of the principal defender, or most simply, defense office within the registry of the court that was mandated to specifically, quote, ensure, unquote, that the rights and interests of suspects and accused persons are protected under Rule 45 of the Rules of Procedure and Evidence. And the idea there was you have to have provision to give meaning to the right to counsel for the defendants. Because remember, an international tribunal, like the Special Court, has to ensure that the trials are fair and that the trials, and this is very important, comply with international human rights law, which provides in the ICCPR, the Civil Political Rights Covenant, Article 14, that every individual who is accused of a crime has a right to have counsel amongst other rights. So the SCSL created the first dedicated office to give effect, so to speak, to the defendant's right in that regard. Second key feature in the innovative practices of the tribunal was that the special court created what they called an outreach section that was essentially unprecedented within international courts in terms of the location, the depth, the scope, and the reach of it. And here's why. It is because the tribunal is in the country. So it was felt that you had to have a two-way communication system, that the tribunal would speak to the population and share what was happening, and in return, listen to the public and bring back their views to the tribunal. Fascinating taking advantage of the presence of the tribunal in the country to reach out to the population to make sure that the population is engaged and aware of the trials. Remember, in the end, the trials are said to be for the benefit of the direct victims of the crime. So if we don't inform them, then we do not do a good job. And this is something that was picked up later on by the International Criminal Court in its involvement in conflict, uh, conflicts in Africa. And then let me end with the third and final point in this regard. The innovation, the third innovation, was the creation of what they called a legacy phase working group, which was comprised of staff from the various sections of the tribunal and entrusted with devising several innovative projects that were anticipated would help the tribunal leave the people of Sierra Leone a lasting legacy that goes well beyond prosecuting a handful of alleged war criminals. And uh, might pause here and interject an anecdote that, in fact, when I was at the tribunal, 
as a legal advisor, I had the privilege of representing my office in the legacy phase working group. And we had a lot of conversations about how this tribunal could impact Sierra Leone once the trials are completed. So this idea that you can plan what you leave behind as a court and try to impact the system is a powerful idea. And as a result, direct result of the work of the legacy phase working group and our engagement with Sierra Leone and authorities, for the first time, for the first time in Sierra Leone, there's a defense office for people accused of crimes in Sierra Leone. So there's a public defender system in Sierra Leone. So people who have the right to counsel under the Sierra Leonean law, under the Constitution, under international law, who would not get a lawyer, now at least have a chance to be considered because of this notion that we could take the idea of the defense office in the court and work with the government and help them implementing it in domestic law. Think about the impact, the deep impact that you can have there. Another last example on this, the way women and victims are treated in the national courts of Sierra Leone. There wasn't much to write home about. But because of the experiences of the tribunal, especially crimes of sexual violence, now in Sierra Leone, there are sex crimes units within the national police that are very sensitive, they are trained, they have social workers and all of that to assist women victims of sex offenses. They prioritize them. They have counselors for them. Again, this is one of those unspoken legacies, indirect though they may be, of the SCSL in Sierra Leone.